This gun sure looks deadly, but it's not the least bit deadly unless I point it at someone and pull the trigger. Gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Repeal the 20th Century. With me, I have Dr. Bob Murphy. Would you like to introduce yourself, doctor? Hey, everyone. Thanks, Peyton. Um, yeah, I, so I'm a, an Austrian school economist. I'm a senior fellow with the Little Gun Mises Institute. And I uh, primarily work on money and banking issues. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad I could finally have you on. I've uh, tried to reach out a few times, and uh, unfortunately, I never was able to catch you at the, just the right time. But finally, I got you at just the right time. Um, and uh, I know a lot of people in my audience have been requesting you a lot. You're one of my most requested guests, actually. Um, so I'm glad to finally have you on and to talk about your, your latest book, which is uh, on money mechanics. Um, very interesting co uh, topic for me and I know for a lot of my viewers. And I think um, a lot of other viewers who may at first be scoff at the idea of talking about money might have a lot of... Uh, might have a lot of interest in the things you'll have to say. So, uh, first, I wanted to get into the the top um, the topic by starting with kind of talking about the the history of money, um, specifically your view that you like in the book. Uh, I know you focus a lot on the in the context of American history, and I think there's a lot of interesting meat there, especially for those who you know kind of say they're more they don't really like the uh, you know, money side of economics and are more about mm -hmm. the politics. But I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there for even those people. So I, I kind of wanted to start by getting into um, the history of, of money, specifically within the United States, and, and why that's so important for understanding money mechanics, especially for our current situation. Well, well sure. So, yeah, maybe just um, some, I'll, I'll explain a few key highlights, and then obviously you can take the conversation whichever way you want. Um, so something that even I did not fully appreciate until fairly recently is that um, I think most people know that, oh, yeah, the U.S. dollar used to be backed up by gold and then something to do with Richard Nixon or they might be they know what Bretton Woods is. And um, and so I I used to have the idea that I thought, oh, oh, yeah, they were all along the money that Americans used was green pieces of paper issued by the government. And yet, but it was just originally, you could always turn that in for gold or silver. That's kind of what, what I had in mind. But actually, it's, it's even more sophisticated than that, that originally, you know, people really were using coins, you know, stamped as a certain number of dollars or whatnot. And, you know, they're either gold or silver. And it wasn't even that the, that the U.S. government decided how many of those coins they were going to make. It was that it was just a standing offer, you know, the, the, the ratios changed over time, but the idea was, you know, the dollar was defined as a certain weight, you know, grams of gold or silver. And then if you had that amount in the, you know, the, the raw metal, as it were, you could just bring it in and they would stamp it into the appropriate coin, depending on how much you turned over. And so there was a sense in which like the market determined the quantity of, of dollars that were in, in existence. And, you know, so anyway, that, and then, you know, things changed over time. And so at some point, it, it, you know, especially since the Federal, once the Federal Reserve existed, it was more like uh, the, the Fed determined the quantity of dollars in existence, but they were, their hands were tied because of the, you know, the gold standard. But like I say, originally, it, it, it's not even right to think that the government was in charge of the money, but just had their hands tied by the, you know, gold standard or the silver standard or by metallic standard when it was both. 
it's it's actually more that they defined what the dollar was in terms of gold and or silver and then the public decided how much of that they wanted and so you know that like it just shows how just how decentralized things were um originally so anyway that was to, to me that that and i walk through all that and give the you know the the different um weights and things like that that uh that happened along the way yeah i i I think that's a very good place to start, actually, because uh, I think where a lot of my line of questioning wanted to go is uh, kind of revolving around that, because something I see that is a very common misunderstanding or, or line of reasoning that I see with people on money is, um, especially because we're getting into such large numbers, especially when we think about what is the U.S.'s debt, what are they spending every year, it's you know in the trillions, and most people cannot even fathom what trillions would look like, and that you know not only now would you have to think of a trillions. Um, in instead of paper bills, if we were still on the system with, that you just described, thinking of it in coins and, and the weight of, of that actual precious metal that had to be there. And um, so I, I kind of wanted to ask of the line of questioning of like, why was it so important that precious metals were involved in our money and why detaching ourselves from this actual weighted um, kind of kind of backing of our currency um, with something tangible versus just the paper money and um, in a lot of cases now just numbers on a screen um, and and why that disconnect it really changed our the way money works in America uh, completely sure so uh, I'll, I'll try to condense a lot of stuff into a brief statement here so uh, I subscribe to the explanation, and a lot of economists do, certainly in the Austrian tradition, that the emergence of money was a spontaneous uh, process. So it's not that you know some wise group of elders or something realized, ah, the benefits of having a common you know unit of exchange or something. Even though you know some schools of thought do think that something along those lines happened, um, and so the idea is you know imagine a society that existed before money proper. And so they would still have property and you know trade things. You know, some people would clearly own these this cattle, and these people would own these berries and whatnot. Um, and then there would be certain things that would be more marketable than others. You know, like eggs would have a pretty wide market, whereas you know a telescope wouldn't. Right, lots of people would want the eggs, whereas very few people would be interested in the telescope kind of thing. And so um, the theory that Karl Menger, who's the founder of the Austrian school, advanced to explain where you know how did money arise was to say that um, originally, you know, if you're going to go around bartering, you would want to be equipped with things that had a wide market, you know, that were very marketable. And so if you had something relatively unmarketable and you happen to come across somebody that wanted it, you know, and they were willing to offer something, you know, valuable in exchange for it, even if you didn't directly want that thing, you would go ahead and make the swap as long as the thing you were getting was more marketable than what you started out with. All right. And so um, and so then the idea is that that process snowballed. So like if originally, yeah, lots of people like eggs, even people who didn't like eggs, like vegetarians might still accept them in trade because they know whatever it is that I do want to get. If I just have eggs, I'm going to find someone who has a thing I want who wants eggs because, it, you know, so many people like eggs, that kind of deal. It's sort of like um, and this really did happen in history in POW in a POW camp in World War Two. There's a famous story. There was a professional economist who was in the war. I think he got shot down and he was in this and he saw how cigarettes became money. And, you know, all the inmates traded things um, for cigarettes, even the non-smokers did because they, you know, they would accept cigarettes knowing that, oh, I'll be able to trade this away to somebody else who does smoke. So that's what happened historically. And so eventually a few goods were just so widely desired and they were so convenient for that purpose that everybody came to accept them. And so that's where money came from. You know, just if, if one of those goods became so marketable that just about everybody in the relevant community would accept it and trade, then that's what money is. That's the thing that's on one half of every transaction. Okay, so now you say, all right, if that's what money is, what properties make for a good money? And it's things like, well, you want it to be durable. So actually eggs wouldn't be a very good money because they could they you know they could spoil or if you drop them they're gonna get smashed, so eggs actually would be a terrible money. 
Um, so you want something that's durable. You also want something that's divisible, right? So, um, you know, diamonds are not a good form of money. They're valuable, of course. If you came across a chest, you know, pirate treasure and found a bunch of diamonds, you'd be happy. But they actually aren't very convenient as money because you can't cut them very easily. And also they're not worth the same. Like if you had a bunch of diamonds and cut them all in half, what you'd be left with is not equivalent in, you know, in most people's eyes. Whereas if you had a bunch of gold coins and you cut them all in half, that's fine because you could just melt them down and then re-stamp them back into gold coins. Like gold, you know, that's one of the properties of gold. So um, you know, when you go through the properties of what it, what it would be um, to make a good money, it's the gold and silver checked all the boxes. And so that's why over time they became the monies of choice for people around the world, especially as you know, world trade embraced the whole globe and everybody was introduced to the benefits of gold and silver. Okay, so that's why gold and silver historically were the, the money that people would spontaneously adopt. And so then when governments, you know, were issuing currency, and, and, and so what happened was in practice, if like if you had large quantities of gold and silver, you wouldn't want to just like lug them into town to go buy something expensive because you get robbed, they're heavy, right? So in practice, people with a lot of gold and silver would deposit them somewhere, you know, we'd call it a bank, and then they would have more convenient, you know, like they'd get notes, for example. So the bank would issue notes saying the holder of this particular note can go get one ounce of gold if they turn it in any of our branches, that sort of thing. And so that's how people got in the practice then of using pieces of paper to go buy things with. But what they were were claim tickets on the actual money, which was the gold or the silver coins that were sitting in vaults in the banks. Okay, And so then the governments of the world, of course, got in on the action. And eventually, in all the major countries, they passed regulations and laws suppressing private banknote issuing and they would just designate a central bank to say this is the only bank that's legally allowed to issue you know the legal tender money you know the, like the, the actual pieces of paper and so that's how the government's got but still even at that point the pieces of paper were redeemable for gold and silver otherwise public wouldn't have gone along with that right because they would have said no the money is the gold and the silver okay so then finally it was you know up till world war one it was what was called the classical gold standard and here you had all the national currency. You know, you had the French franc, the German mark, the U.S. dollar, the British pound, but they were all tied to specific weights of gold, and anybody could turn those things in and get them redeemed. And so that implied a bunch of exchange rates for all the, you know, the the, the Brit U.S. dollar and the British pound had a sort of natural exchange rate built in because of the gold redemption rates that each government gave for the their respective currencies, and so. You know, it was it fostered world trade. It was easy to do business. You know, you could buy inputs, buy raw materials from Germany, have them assembled in a factory in England, and then have them exported. Have the products exported to the United States. And as a business person, you wouldn't have to worry about the currency exchange rates moving between the mark and the pound and the dollar because the gold standard locked them all in place. Right. So that all died with the first world war because it would have greatly limited the ability of the governments to spend. And so they all, the U.S., not so much, but all the other major belligerents went off the gold standard and that allowed them to print money like crazy to pay for the war effort. And so among other things, you could say the reason the gold standard is good is because it would have prevented a world war. Um, and so I'll, I'll cut to the chase. Um, after World War II, it was basically they had the Bretton Woods system where it was basically the U.S. dollar was the reserve currency of the world. All the other central banks piled up U.S. dollars or you know treasury bonds that were claims on future dollars. But then the U.S. government, the Federal Reserve, said to the other central banks, not to regular people, if you hand in do over dollars, we'll exchange them for it was thirty-five dollars for an ounce of gold. And so that was like the underpinning of the whole system. And then finally, in 1971. Even that got thrown out when Richard Nixon, Richard Nixon closed the gold window. And so from 1971 onward, all the major governments of the world have been use, issuing purely fiat currency, meaning there's nothing backing up dollars, there's nothing backing up the euro. And that's a relatively new thing in human history, right? Um, so like Mises wrote his book in 1912 on the theory of money and credit. He had a section that admitted the theoretical possibility of fiat money but at that point, he didn't think it had yet existed. 
Okay. And so, I mean, just showing that, you know, to him, like, no, money is a commodity, like gold and silver, you know, it'd be, it'd be horrifying to think it's, it's just this unbagged thing. So why is it, what's the big deal? Well, among other things, notice in the U.S. history, when did we have stagflation? It was the 1970s, right? So right after Richard Nixon finally severed the last tie to gold, that's when the Federal Reserve really, you know, went drunk printing money, even in nominally peacetime, right? So the, the, the prime virtue of the gold standard historically was that it limited what the government, how much the government could debase the currency because they couldn't print too much because people always had the ability just to turn the paper money over to get gold back. And so once that check was gone, then it was just more of a political issue. And, oh, yeah, they can't print too much because then if price inflation is too high, people get mad. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a very good explanation and, and can help a lot of people put in this gap because I, I think I see a lot of people, even people who are, um, you know, very friendly to the Austrian school, libertarians, the like, um, when they speak about the Fed and the money and, and what happened with our money that that got us to where we are, it, it, a lot of it is sounds very unsound or uh, a, almost a telephone game of um, you know people like yourself and other Austrian economists saying these things and some things are getting lost in translation and so I think for a lot of people it's very helpful to hearing straight from the horse's mouth uh, so to speak of, mm -hmm. of of what's going on and and what Austrians are actually thinking about about this and also. How does this actually work? You know, beyond the um, you know scare messaging about the Fed. What, well, why is it that we should be scared of the Fed, really? You know, um, so I I think you gave a very good explanation there. But I I want to go in and and talk a little bit more about fiat money specifically, um, the processes by which we're getting all this fiat money. Because I think um, a lot of people, it's very clear to them that money's just kind of coming out of uh, nowhere is I think how most people will will describe it that money's just poofing into existence and and then upholding our system as it is right now um, and I, I think most people don't really understand how how that is that we have you know how new money is getting into the circulation and um, <clears throat> kind of what are the effects of this and uh, specifically what did it mean for the 2008 financial crisis and uh, the 2020 coronavirus panic, which I think are the two big events that people think about. And as you wrote about in the book, um, <clears throat> when it comes when it comes with all the uh, how is it that we actually are getting all this money to pay for all these things that are these numbers that I can't even conceive of. OK, sure. So the, the basic process. Um, so, like, you know, this happened in the, during the financial crisis with the various rounds of so-called quantitative easing. And then it happened even more aggressively um, after, you know, when the COVID uh, re reaction set in starting in March 2020. So the, the basic pro uh, process is that the federal government starts spending a lot more money than normal. And so, they're, you know, their tax receipts haven't gone up. So that means the deficit the budget deficit would be a lot higher than normal. And then, um, so, so how does that, how does the government finance the federal government finance that? So I'm not talking about the fed yet. I'm just talking about the federal government per se, because they're technically distinct entities in terms of the accounting and budgeting process. So the, the federal government per se doesn't directly issue money. And so if it spends more than its receipts in a given period, it needs to borrow the difference. So the U S treasury issues, bonds uh in order to raise money to you know to, to borrow money but not but that's not the end of the story so now there's a bunch of extra treasury let's call them treasury securities because they have distinction between bills and, and notes and and what they call bonds so treasury securities are now they're, they're flooding the community and so normally if it weren't if the fed didn't exist when the u.s federal government is borrowing a lot more money that would push up interest rates on U.S. federal debt, right? And that, that makes sense that they're borrowing more, you know, the amount they have to pay in interest would, would go up the, the rate um, as people were more worried about, like, geez, they're borrowing a lot of money, you know, maybe they're not going to pay it back or or even just, even if you weren't worried about them paying it back, but just, you know, wow, I've already cut back my own consumption to lend money to the government. If I had to do it even more, like they really have to pay me more on the margin to get me to be willing to do that. 
And so that's why, you know, the more they borrow, they tend to push up interest rates. But the Fed comes in and says, oh, no, it's a crisis. You know, there's a banking crisis in 2008 or it's the Corona panic. We don't want interest rates going up. And so how do they keep them suppressed, even though there's all these new treasuries flooding the market, is the Fed comes in and buys them. And so here's the magic now. So how does the Fed have the money to go buy these, you know, trillion dollars in new treasuries that just got created by the federal government borrowing that much money extra? It's just through the accounting, right? So this is the the, the magic, as it were. When people say that the Fed creates money out of thin air, this is the, the step where that happens. Is the Fed, you know, there's people in the private sector, you know, uh, investment banks or whoever, who own treasuries, let's say someone owns a million dollars in, in U S treasuries. And so the fed wants to buy it. And so the fed, you know, electronically writes a check drawn on the federal reserve bank of New York or whatever, gives it to that, the broker dealer, or whoever, who's selling that stuff, they transfer the treasury. So now the fed owns those, that million dollars of treasuries. It's out, it's an asset listed on the feds books. And that person now has a check written on the Fed. You know, it's probably not a paper thing; it's electronic. And they go deposit it with their bank, you know, Bank of America or Citibank, whatever. And so, what does Citibank do? They credit the checking account, you know, of that firm that just sold the treasuries to the Fed by a million dollars. You know, their checking account goes up by a million. But now Citibank takes the check, deposits it with the Fed, and so now Citibank itself has a checking account balance with the fed and now that gets credited a million dollars and so you say well where'd the million come from it didn't come from anywhere it was just magically created through the accounting operation so the you know the, the books balance on the from the fed's perspective now the fact that citibank has an extra million in its checking account means the fed's liabilities are now a million dollars higher namely you know because from the fed's perspective if citibank has an account with them with a balance, then that's a liability of the Fed. The Fed's like the banker's bank. And the Fed's assets just went up a million dollars. They have a million dollars worth of treasury security. So, you know, the assets and liabilities both went up by a million, but the point is the Fed didn't, a, a normal firm can't do that. A normal firm would first have to have the million dollars and then would just be transferring the type of asset. You know, if it had a million dollars in its own checking account, that would get marked down a million and its asset, you know, its treasury holdings would go up a million. That's how a normal, like a you know, a hedge fund or something, if they bought a million dollars in treasuries, that's what the accounting would look like. But with the Fed, it's not they had a million dollars somewhere first that got a, you know a million subtracted from to go buy it. No, the Fed just in the act of it buying something, that new money comes into existence. The way our current legal and regulatory structure works. So, so that's the essence of it. And then, you know, to take it further, um, historically. Once new reserves, so those are called reserves. Uh, when regular banks have account balances with the Fed, those things are called reserves. And then that's the means by which the regular banks then can extend credit to their own customers. And so they, they pyramid their own loans on top of the new reserves. So if, if people ever took like a, a macro 101 class, they probably learned that, like how, how the central bank creates money or something and the money multiplier, they sometimes call it. So that, that's that, that process. But um, the commercial banks, just to be clear, they can't create legal tender money. What they do is it's, um, you know, if, if, City, if, if Citibank says that you have $200 on deposit with them, technically speaking, they just owe you that money, right? So you, you can go around town and shop with it. And most merchants treat Citibank owing you $200 as if that's just as good as you having, you know, two $100 bills. But strictly speaking, those are not legally equivalent things. And that's what, that's why bank runs are possible because, you know, if, if everybody thinks their money's with the bank, but actually it lent most of it out and they go and run, that's when you see the distinction. No, it's better to have hundred dollar bills than just have Citibank saying they owe you a hundred dollars. Okay. So I'll, I'll stop there and then tell me if you want me to elaborate on any of that stuff. No, I, I think I think you've got the gist of uh, where I think most people's misunderstandings and filling in gaps that uh, I, I think don't exist in a lot of people's um, consciousness. But I, I think something you do address in the book that a lot of people will wonder, and I, I've actually quite literally gotten this question uh, very recently, is, um, well, 
you guys talk about how all these things are bad as Austrian economists. And you say, you know, here's the consequence of us doing this is that we could get hyperinflation like Venezuela or Zimbabwe. But we don't have it. We've been doing it for quite a while now. Um, we've been kicking it up into overdrive. And while inflation's getting bad, it's nowhere near hyperinflation. And so I, I kind of wanted to ask you, you know, we we as Austrian economists often talk about these these potential downsides and uh you know what what is it that is preventing this kind of situation and um you know what what is it that will be the straw that breaks the camel back if we can actually mm-hmm. know that okay sure oh by the way you had asked me like where does the actual paper currency come from so part of the explanation is you know i just explained like where new bank reserves come from it's also true that like Citibank, if it has whatever, $30 million on deposit with the Fed, and those are reserves, if Citibank in its own coffers, in vaults and its branches and stuff, is running low on literal currency, it can just tell the Fed, hey, you know, instead of us having $30 million electronically on deposit with you, let's print up a million of that. So we'll only have $29 million now electronically on deposit with you, and you're going to actually ship us a million dollars in you know new hundreds and fifties or something and then we're going to go stock our atms with that right so so that's that's one element of it um because the the reserves on deposit with the fed are legally equivalent to green pieces of you know federal reserve notes the green pieces of paper with dead presidents on them um whereas your checking account with citibank is not legally equivalent to a hundred dollar bill Okay, so the question, you know, there's been a lot of doom and gloomers. There were warnings since QE, you know, some, some people even since 1971, ever since the dollar went off the gold standard, there have been a lot of hard money types saying, that's it, the dollar's toast, there's nothing backing it up, now it's just a bubble, it's going to go to zero, that's the only logical place, and they've been waiting for, you know, 50 years for that to happen. So, um, and so let me mention, just to, so no one is surprised later and think I'm hiding something, so I was one of the people, I wasn't predicting hyperinflation. And I actually was telling some people like in 2010, um, hey, let's let's be careful with that word because even if from what the Fed had done to that point with the rounds of QE, even if that fully ramified through the system and you know, prices responded accordingly to how much they increased the money, so even if the banks fully lent out as much as they could now, that wouldn't have caused prices to go up by like a factor of a hundred. Right. And so, and so, I mean, it's when people talk about hyperinflation, you know, it's, it's really, um, you know, significant amounts in a very short period of time when you talk about like Zimbabwe or Germany and things like that. So anyway, I, I was saying let's, even though, yes, I was very alarmed about impending rapid rises in, in consumer prices. I was saying, let, let's be careful with our language and what did happen, you know, so I, to be clear, I was wrong. Even my modest warnings, I, it, it, the very best you could say is I jumped the gun, but um, I, I, that was my concern that people would, you know, we, we would sound like we're doomsayers and oh yeah, you guys are perma bears. You're always worrying about the dollar's going to collapse next Tuesday. So, so now what happened? So what's interesting though, is because after the 2008 crisis, Guys like me, and some you know more aggressively than me, were going around saying, "Whoa, look at all this money the Fed's pumping into the system. This is going to make consumer prices rise much more rapidly than Americans are used to." And that didn't happen, right? Now, it's true. There's things like the Fed or the the government was fudging with how they defined inflation, and they were doing things like that. So, actual price inflation was probably higher than the official numbers. But you can just look at the price of gasoline. Right. That if you listen to the rhetoric of some people, gasoline should have been twenty dollars a gallon by two thousand eleven, and it wasn't. Right. It's, but then what's interesting is, so a lot of people like Paul Krugman and other Keynesians, and especially the MMT camp, were saying, "Oh yeah, see these hard money types, the Austrians and some of the Chicago school people, they're you know they're dinosaurs. They're thinking in terms of the gold standard. They don't get how modern money works." And then when the Corona stuff happened again regular people were warning about it and Krugman and people like that were just, you know, poo-pooing it and saying, no, no, you go, oh, there they go again, warning about inflation. And then they look like idiots because 
you know, there, and there's the example, like if you follow Krugman's column, he kept calling, to, okay, the, the price hikes are over now. And he kept being wrong. Like they just know they just kept getting bigger and bigger. So, um, so sort of like the opposite mistake that a lot of the people who looked good in 2010 and 11, because they didn't warn about the dollar collapse and ha ha, look at these, these, you know, alarmists. They also were telling people, don't worry in 2020 and 2021. And then they really did underestimate how bad, you know, consumer price. Rate. So as, as far as, you know, what's the difference between the two episodes, I think part of it is in 2008, nine, there was a, a financial crisis. Right? It was the banking system collapsing. So, or that was the fear. And so um, a lot of people were rushing to hold extra money out of panic. And so in a sense, I think like the demand to hold dollars went way up. And so the fed by pumping in a bunch of new dollars was just accommodating that. And that's why you didn't see the, the, the purchasing power of the dollar shrink too much. Whereas in 2020, yeah, people were not, it wasn't a normal scenario, but it wasn't a financial crisis. It was, you know, the COVID and the lockdowns and all that. And that it was coupled with the stimulus payments. So there, it wasn't, people's natural reaction wasn't necessarily to just save a bunch. And in fact, you know, they weren't, to the extent they were saving it was because they couldn't go shopping. You know what I mean? Like, so actually saving rates went up it was because they couldn't spend it on a lot of things. So I think that partly explains why. And there was also the supply crunch was obviously much more severe in 2020 going forward. So given that their supply was constrained, demand, you know, and they, they pumped in way more money too in, in you know, 2020 onward. But as far as, you know, why did it seem like the textbook was right in 2020, but not earlier? I think part of it is that it was a financial crisis earlier. And it, there were, I, I won't get into the details here, but I gave a talk at Mises University on this. But there were other things that in retrospect, we could have been looking at to see that, oh, yeah, like, I'll say one last thing. If you look at certain of the monetary aggregates, um, like M2 did not rise significantly after 2008, 2009. M1 shot way up, but M2 did not look unusually, it rose some, but it wasn't like off the charts. Whereas M2, it also rose a lot in 2020. So part of what happened back in 2008 is, yeah, the Fed was pumping in money, but people were getting out of like mutual money market funds and stuff and just wanted to have checking account balances. Because that's part of what happened in the fall of 2008 is certain financial structures that normally were pretty safe got into trouble and people panicked and they, they, they just wanted their money like literally in a commercial bank thinking that was pretty safe. So some of the charts and things of various measures of the money supply look like they were rising aggressively, but it was really people were just kind of shifting the composition of their total assets. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a very interesting explanation of, of why we haven't seen this situation that a lot of doomer and gloomers have said that we will see. Um, and also just kind of some of the implications that I think people draw from the Austrian explanation of, of how money works and stuff and say like, well, but by your understanding, we must, we, we should be completely destroyed right now. Um, but I, I think you gave a very good context for, for why that isn't, you know, why we are in the doom and gloom situation. Um, but that, you know, we very well could be, um, uh, but I think the next thing I wanted to ask you is another thing covered in the book. Um, and I think what a lot of people have been thinking about more and more and more is kind of uh, how do cryptocurrencies now play into the money mechanics and, and how money works? Because I think a lot of people kind of think that cryptocurrency is kind of revolutionizing or, or at the very least changing how we think about money and um, in turn would change how money would work in general. And uh, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that, on whether or not you think cryptocurrency really is this new kind of money, if it's going to change how money works, and um, if our conceptions of money are going to deeply change because of cryptocurrency. Sure. So um, I do have a chat in this book that we're talking about understanding money mechanics. I do have a chapter on Bitcoin, the mechanics of it. So as you know, is it money? My take is... Um, it it could be it's not obvious yet because what what's the definition of money you know in the Austrian tradition it's a medium of exchange that's 
almost universally accepted, at least in a certain community. And so, um, by by that token, I you know, it's and it's a little you know, you could say, well, the community of Bitcoiners scattered around the world, don't they? When they all accept it, yeah. But I guess when you say in a certain community, I think it means more like people that they interact with each other. So even the, the, the you know the the Bitcoiners who would gladly anything they were selling, they would gladly accept Bitcoins in exchange for it they still aren't paying their rent necessarily. If they go to the grocery store, it's not. So it's not that, you know, they're embedded in a network of people on a day-to-day basis where the transactions are all in Bitcoin. So, so that's what I mean when I say, even though it, at some point it could be money, I think I would not be prepared right now to say yet that it qualifies, even though it could. And let me, since we're, you know, talking about all this in relationship to Austrian economics, let me just address. So I, I don't hear it as much lately but originally when Bitcoin first came out, there was a strong contingent of some Austrian followers who were saying, no, Mises regression theorem, if people have heard of that, proves that Bitcoin can't be money. And the, so my problem with that move is to say, well, no, because if you go look at Mises' arguments, so what was happening there is Mises was trying to explain historically the emergence of commodity monies you could trace back the purchasing power to the point at which they were just regular commodities. And so that was how he got out of like an infinite regress because to just say, Oh, money has purchasing power because of people's expectations about its purchasing power. It's like, well then, you know, how does that get started? And so so Mises like closed the loop by saying, well, you know, back in the day with gold and silver, for example, at some point gold and silver were just valued as regular commodities. So people knew what their purchasing power was then. And then they just augmented that once they started accepting it, you know, as a medium of exchange. Whereas with Bitcoin, you can't really do that. It's not that there was a period where people were just using Bitcoins to put in their sandwiches. And that's how we had some framework to know how much their purchasing power was. And, oh, and now actually we'll use them, you know, as media of exchange too. And so then it was no Bitcoin from its inception was designed to be a thing that facilitated trading and, you know, would serve as a money if enough people adopted it. Um, and so, but anyway, my, uh, problem w- with that move rhetorically is if you go look at Mises' arguments, what he's saying is for something to be a medium of exchange, it would have needed to have that prior history so people would know how to value it, right? So he actually wasn't saying this is what's necessary for something to become a money. And so by anybody's reckoning, Bitcoin already is a medium of exchange. There are plenty of people who accept Bitcoins in trade, not because they're going to directly use them, but because down the road, they're planning on trading it away to obtain something else. So that's what a medium of exchange is. So Bitcoin has already passed that hurdle. So if you're saying, no, Mises said because of his regression theorem argument, then you're just saying Mises is wrong, right? So it's, it's not that you're making some statement about the future of Bitcoin. It, you know, either Mises regression theorem is compatible with Bitcoin or he was just wrong. It's, it's, there's no way that the Mises remarks on the regression theorem constrain what Bitcoin is allowed to do because, again, it, it has already become a medium of exchange. Um, beyond that, uh, I, I do think so. You know, part of the problem, I'm just saying some obvious things here, is the volatility. It would be, it would be hard for Bitcoin anytime soon to become a replacement for more conventional forms of money just because it's, it is so volatile in, in price, you know, purchasing power. As more people started holding it, the volatility would would get dampened. Um, so there's that, but then also, you know, the, the built-in issues with the, uh, you know, just the the transaction, you know, bottlenecks, you know, that that's some. So I, I think it may be that more like Bitcoin is the equivalent of gold bars, and that you know, so I think down the road, cryptocurrencies will more and more take up will will take up larger fractions of global commerce but i don't know that in the year 2200 everything's going to be you know literally transacted in, in movements of bitcoins on the actual bitcoin ledger uh last thing i will say on this and then you know whatever however you want to take it peyton is this recent uh the you know the collapse of uh silicon valley bank and silvergate bank and and people were explaining um you know how oh, bitcoin fixes this right the popular slogan and so it, it was interesting, you know, for just to inquire what they meant by that, that, um, and again, this is obvious to people who've been into Bitcoin for years, but in case other people haven't been just to explain it, 
So the idea is if you're holding your own Bitcoins, you don't need to use a bank, right? That's kind of the point. And so the thing like with Silicon Valley Bank that was so interesting is they didn't, they weren't investing in risky things, right? It wasn't like they had mortgage-backed securities that collapsed because the housing market tanked, which is kind of what happened in 2007 and eight. It was just, they had, you know, treasuries that their maturity was long. So when the Fed hiked rates, they got into trouble. So the, there were a lot of like regular business owners saying, look at everyone's, you know, complaining about the big boys getting bailed out or whatever. And people, you know, fat cats with over 250,000 in checking account balances. We're just a mid-sized business with 50 employees. And we had our payroll at, at Silicon Valley bank. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, we had more than 250,000 because our payroll every month is higher than that. And it's not that we're, you know, super fat cats. It's just, that's the payroll. And, you know, it's not that SVP was particularly reckless, so, you know, where do you want us to keep our payroll? We got to keep it in a bank. And so, you know, that kind of mentality, like I think showed the scope in a lot of people now, especially if your listeners are familiar with Caitlin Long, she's been beating the drums, just saying that, you know, that's one of the good things about crypto is that, you know, if, if you hold your own keys and whatnot, that you don't need to worry. Like if you have it, you have it. And it's not that because of mismanagement on somebody else's part, all of a sudden your money disappears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm really glad that you actually brought up the Silicon Valley bank situation because I think a good way to tie everything we've discussed together is kind of talking about this situation because um, for a few days, it seemed like it was what everybody was talking about, more more like two days, everybody was talking about the situation and then it, it's poofed, you know, kind of disappeared on, off of most people's radar and we've moved on to the next thing. But, you know, from the little I was able to read about it, um, while it was going on, it seemed like it was a pretty important situation, and um, there were quite a lot of people beating the drums of, of doom and gloom. And so, I kind of wanted to ask you about, um, you know, tying together everything we've talked about today, uh, like what was kind of going on there, and, and what are the implications of this situation? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, just real briefly, um, the reason they got into trouble it was a two pronged thing. So Silicon Valley Bank, their, their customers tended to be um, like tech companies, startups, things like that. They were the go-to bank for that sort of stuff. And they were a big, I think the number's either 16th or 11th that, you know, like a few months ago, they were, I think, I think it was six, the 16th largest bank in the United States, right? So this is not some piddly little bank. This is a big deal. And so it was just well known, like in the tech circles that, oh yeah, you go to SVP, you know, to get your financing or whatnot. And so... Partly um, the reason they got into trouble was a two-pronged thing. So in 2022, their deposits got drawn down more heavily than the other than a typical banks because their customers, again, tended to be these tech companies. And so as, as the Fed raised interest rates, you know, like a tech company, especially a startup, their appeal is they're saying, hey, we're going to do a bunch of research. You know, we're not going to make any money for a few years. But here's what we're trying to do. And if this thing takes off, you know, five, 10 years from now, we might be the next Amazon or whatever, the next Google. And so, but we don't know, you know, you don't know, right? And so as an investor, so the idea is when interest rates are real low, venture capitalists are happy to fund projects like that because it's a dollar today is kind of like a dollar 10 years from now. I'm exaggerating, but when interest rates are really low, it's not that big a deal. But then when interest rates start rising, now all of a sudden uh, lenders get a lot choosier and they would rather go with ventures that on paper, you know, will promise to pay sooner rather than later because now you're getting penalized more for the time discount. And so a lot of these tech startup companies that were customers of SVP in 2022, their outside funding dried up. And so they had no choice, like just to pay their bills and pay their employees and whatever they just started drawing down their checking account balances that happened to be with SVP. So that's partly why SVP saw its deposits shrinking more rapidly than the standard banks. And then on their asset side, um, well, that was their asset side too, that, that we're getting, you know, their, their cash reserves were shrinking, but also they had invested a bunch, you know, when people were making those deposits, what was SVP doing with them? They were going and buying longer term treasuries than the, the other typical bank would. And so that was kind of like the management, the strategic error they made is their assets were more heavily concentrated in longer term treasuries. 
the number I saw was there um, in what's called the hold the maturity portfolio. The duration was like 6.2 years on average, like dollar weighted average. Right. So as people probably know, listening, when interest rates rise, if, if you have a bond, the longer term the bond is, the more its current price fluctuates based on movements in the interest rate. And so that's why SVP's assets got pushed down in value. If they could have just held them to maturity, they would have been okay, but they couldn't. And so that's, that's why they got hit. And they, you know, it was, and then once there's blood in the water, everybody hears about it on social media and you know, they had massive withdrawals, like just in the course of a few days. So it was like in the course of three days that they went from, uh Oh, we're in a little bit of trouble to they were done. So, um, you know, so that's what, what happened with them. Um, and then I guess the, the concern was the, like the reason it was such a big deal until the Fed and the FDIC came in was again, it, it was not that they were some isolated rogue bank that was investing in pork belly futures or something crazy. They, they were buying what were supposed to be the safest assets around us treasuries. It's just, they happen to be a little bit, you know, longer term than most people would have had. They weren't hedged. But the U.S. banking system has something like 600 billion plus in unrealized losses on their treasury holdings right now. So I think the fear was this isn't going to stop with Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank. They're just all going to start going down like dominoes. And the other feature about SVP was the average uh, customers deposits with them was like over four million dollars or something like that. It was you know pretty incredible. And so the fact that the FDIC said, hey, any checking account balance will insure up to 250000 that was peanuts. Most people were going to lose most of their deposits with SVP if the FDIC merely just covered everybody up to the 250 k ceiling. And so that was causing pain. And so what was going to end up happening if, if they didn't do anything, the fear was everybody was going to take all their money out of the regional banks and go move them into the bigger ones like JP Morgan and whatever, because they were, they look uh, more solid, like their, their portfolio looks stronger and things like that. And so, and the, the thought was the fed's not going to let JP Morgan go down. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so it's kind of to contain that panic. That's why FDIC and the fed and we're just kind of came in and just said, you know, we're backstopping everything. So specifically what they did is they said to all the, they, the fed set up some new, lending facility saying on good collateral, which is like treasuries and mortgage backed securities. If any bank wants to borrow from us, we'll give you up to a one year loan and we'll value that collateral at par. So even though the market price of those things has collapsed because of rising interest rates, we'll lend to you up to the amount you paid for that bond. And so that's implicitly a subsidy. It's, you know, it's a a bailout if you want to use that word because you know, they're lending on collateral, for more than the collaterals actually worth. So, you know, that's what they did. And again, I think it's because if they didn't do something aggressive like that, yeah, the contagion would have spread. It still may happen because, I mean, the fundamentals are still all screwed up, but that's how they kind of put the fire out, at least in the short term. And that's why that's all anybody was talking about for a few days. And then, the, I mean, that that's what the Fed wanted to do. They wanted people not to be talking about this anymore. They had, you know, Biden go up on TV and tell everybody, oh, your money's safe, don't worry. You know, leave your money in the banks because, again, that's the problem with fractional reserve banking. If the public goes next Tuesday, they take their money out, the banks all go down. Doesn't matter how safe they are, doesn't matter how big they are. If, you know, people deposit their money and then they go put it into mortgages or even one year treasuries, they don't have the money. It's not sitting in the vaults. They can't honor if, if too, mu- too high a percentage of the clientele wants to withdraw their money, the banks don't have it. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good explanation of, of what was going on and certainly edifying for myself. Um, and, and I think it helps, again, understand the previous question that I had asked about, you know, why aren't we having these doom and gloom situations? And specifically with the most recent thing to cause uh, the doom and gloomers to come out in uh, full force. And then for the obvious reaction from people like Paul Krugman, who are like, haha, the, you know, everything you guys say about economics is wrong because, look, your doom and gloom situation didn't happen. But um, 
yeah, I, I very much appreciate you coming on to discuss all that. So now I wanted to give you um, the chance to promote anything that you had and give you the floor as I do with sure. all my guests. Um, anything you want my audience to be aware of. Um, of course, the book that uh, inspired us. Yeah, I got us. a copy right here. Yep. So, oh, oh my so, not. Yeah. There, there it go. is. Yep. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, the book is Understanding Money Mechanics. Of course, you can, you know, get the physical copy if you want. But if you go to Mises.org, that's M-I-S-E-S dot O-R-G, and just search, you know, and they're, they, they'll, the, the PDF or EPUB, the various free versions are available as well because they, you know, they want to get the word out. So, I would encourage, yeah, if people are interested in the stuff we've been talking about, Peyton, in this episode, there's plenty more of that laid out in that book. And I, and also, I should say, it's even though it's from an Austrian perspective, I wanted that book to be something that just a standard college professor could have said, even somebody who's a Keynesian, even you know a progressive in terms of their politics, that they would have no problem assigning that to their students. So I, I really did try to make sure it was just factually accurate in terms of explaining you know, how does the, the our money and banking system work nowadays and um one thing i'll mention too just to pique people's interest in case they uh you know they already know the stuff we were talking about here is that one of the chapters i do address uh some modern economists criticize the fuddy-duddy austrians and they say oh yeah how they talk about the central bank has to buy assets and that adds reserves and then the banking system makes loans they say that's that's totally antiquated. That's not how it works. You know, nowadays it's it's actually the opposite. That the banks just make loans and that creates the reserves and the deposit. Da, da, da. And so I I deal with that in the book. It's, it's sort of like they're both kind of saying similar things, but coming from a different angle. And so I just try to reconcile those two viewpoints. So again, if if any of your listeners have gotten pushback from people who say, you know, the the stand the way the Austrians talk about money and banking is antiquated, I I do address that objection in the book yeah no i i I definitely will make sure people have access to where they can get the book um i always suggest getting a a paper copy because i like paper copies myself but also i think it it helps support the people who who make this work um in a very real and tangible way but i love also that mises provides pdfs of a lot of uh a lot of this stuff for free because it it helps me out and it helps many other people out. Um, so, but I, I wanted to, again, thank you so much for coming on and, and hope to have you on again at some time. Um, but yeah, thank you so much and have a wonderful day. Thanks for having me, Peyton. I guess the last thing I'll mention is if you go on Twitter, if you go at Bob Murphy econ, there's a lot of jokes and silliness there, but there also is stuff that people want to like f- keep tabs on what I'm, what I'm doing lately. That's where they should go. Yeah, for sure. And I will make sure uh, everyone has access to that as well. Well, thank you, everyone. We must stop the terror. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank Thank you. you. Now watch this drive.